If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Today's episode features a debate that was recorded live at our festival, How the Light Gets In, last September. If you want to experience more of our content live, you can join us in person or online at our next festival this June. Check out the link in the show notes for more information. Now, on to the debate. Science, once a branch of philosophy, has become the philosophical belief of our time. Some have even claimed that philosophy is in fact over. However, in the last half century, technology has become more contentious and big scientific theory has seemingly stalled. Might philosophy once again find itself center stage at a time when knowledge and progress are in question? Or is science still the only credible way to improve our circumstances and make sense of the world? Joining us to debate the need for philosophy, our co-founder of the Philosopher's Magazine, Julian Bagini, chemist, Peter Atkins, Crick Institute researcher, Gunesh Taylor, and consciousness philosopher, Philip Goff. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iai.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Melanie Challenger. Less than a lifetime, the first half of the 20th century brought a series of life-changing inventions. Phones, cars, planes, radio, TV, the first computers. In combination with the all-encompassing new stories of physics, science, once a branch of philosophy, became the philosophical belief of our time. Some claimed philosophy was over. Yet in the last half century, technology has become more contentious and big scientific theory has seemingly stalled, as cosmology and the standard model get more puzzling and less clear-cut. Might philosophy once again find itself centre stage at a time when knowledge and progress are in question? Or is science still the only credible way we have to improve our circumstances and make sense of our world? We've got Julian Bugini, he's a British philosopher, journalist and author of over 20 philosophical books. Bugini's researched and published on a wide array of topics, including personal identity, the philosophy of food, the European Union, British liberty, and even Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Peter Atkins, by trade, is a British chemist and fellow of Lincoln College, Oxford. Perhaps just as famously, Atkins is a prolific atheist. 
He's debated numerous public fig figures such as William Lane Craig and Mehdi Hassan on the topic of religion as well as appearing on the Channel 4 documentary, The Trouble with Atheism. Ganesh Taylor is a training fellow at the Francis Crick Institute, the London-based biomedical research center. In 2018, Ganesh was awarded the Crick Public Engagement Prize for her efforts on the public communication of science. And finally, Philip Goff is an associate professor of philosophy at Durham University, where he specializes in the integration of consciousness into our worldview. He argues that the notion that consciousness is separate from the body and brain is flawed. So um, they're gonna to respond to the question, has science replaced philosophy as the way to understand the world? Or is philosophy on the way back? Peter. Ooh. <laughs> Sorry, that was my heartbeat you could hear in the background. <laughs> um, philosophy is a, a clever bundle of speculations, often no more than that, and no more really than erudite and sometimes, but not always, intelligent fiction. Science is also a clever bundle of speculations, but through observation and experiment, it holds a, a mirror up to nature uh, to discover whether its reflections actually mirror reality. Experiment in alliance with rational thought, and especially mathematics, um, is the only means we have for discovering the truth. And as philosophy does not indulge in the controlled tests that we call experiment, it has very weak claim to be a superior role of understanding the truth. I suspect that our understanding of the natural world, the only world, in fact, that there is, um, has never been edged forward one notch or whatever the unit is for measuring progress by the work of a philosopher, unless they have actually carried the mantle of being a scientist. Now, philosophy, I suspect, at root is the clarification of common sense. It also helps to resolve moral dilemmas, and it tries to render precise everyday thought. But advances in science, you must remember, often consist of the overthrow of common sense. Think of relativity and think of a quantum theory. Uh, so were philosophy to come back to stride the boards, then it would have to deal with common sense. And so it would not make progress, the kind of progress that science is famous for. Philosophy also has been contaminated in the past by theology. And unless we insist upon evidence rather than just prejudice, theology might creep back in the darkness under the cover of philosophy and stultify understanding and, and redirect investigations into pointless directions. Admittedly, we have to reflect upon the implications of the discoveries of science, and perhaps philosophers can play a secondary role there. Though I suspect that the scientists are perfectly capable of contemplating the implications of their work and don't need the probably um, amateurish intrusions <laughs> of philosophers to help them. 
Right. Um, no, there is one final. Um, Sorry, Peter, you were flowing there. <laughs> deeper, uh, deeper distinction uh, between the two disciplines. Philosophy is intrinsically pessimistic, uh, formulating arguments that warn against the prospect of too hasty progress. Science, in contrast, is intrinsically optimistic, uh, forging ahead some great ocean liner, and I hope not the Titanic, uh, presuming that clarification and understanding will be found despite all the odds. And the replacement of science by philosophy would return us to the dark ages of pessimism, if not the Taliban, then <laughs> at least the Texan. <laughs> Uh, so, is, um, is philosophy on the way back? I very much hope so. I hope that it is going really far back. Ganesh. Well, uh, of course, I am sat on this side for a reason. I'm also a scientist, so um, there's, a, there's a significant part of me that agreed with everything that Peter had to say. Science is a methodology. It's a way of uh, thinking about what you see and rationalizing it and probing the world around us, right? It's a method. And that's that's great. I obviously, because I'm a scientist to that extent, clearly think that that's the right way of trying to engage with the, the world around us and to understand what the, the sort of fabric of reality is. I'm not a philosopher, but as a human being, I do acknowledge the fact that there's something quite sort of, there's a gap between what science tells me about the world and sometimes what I feel about it. And, and I do see where philosophy might come in useful to basically making a bag of chemicals that is having sensations, which is effectively what I am, feel a bit better about that. And I don't think that that's not worth having. I just think that it doesn't necessarily tell me anything about the reality of the, the world, which is what I care most about. So, I mean, I think that's a, that's a really um, short version of what I think about this kind of thing. So I'll stop there. Philip, I'm going to bring you on three minutes. On well, this is going to be fun, because I'm about as far away from Peter as you could possibly get, <laughs> maybe the polar opposite. So I think we're currently going through a phase of history where people are so blown away by the success of experimental science and the incredible technology it's produced that they become inclined to think that the story we get from experimental science is the complete truth about reality. And if you believe in things that can't be experimentally verified, you're an idiot who's dragging us back to the Dark Ages. This is the philosophy of scientism, the defining philosophy, the defining ideology, perhaps even religion of our times. The irony is, I think, experimental science has been so successful precisely because it's focused, since the scientific revolution, on a quite narrow, specific task, namely accounting for the data of public observation and experiments. But there are plainly things we know to be real, independently of experimental science. The most obvious example is the reality of consciousness. We did, this isn't something we discovered in a particle collider. We know that consciousness exists, not through experiments, but through our immediate awareness of our own feelings and experiences. Another example is the timeless entities of mathematics, numbers, sets, functions, these are not things we discovered through a microscope, we discovered them, we discern them through mathematical intuition. 
So there are these different, I could go on, there are these different kinds of entities we know about in different ways. The task of philosophy, therefore, is synthesis. The job of the philosopher is to take these different entities we know about in different ways and to bring them together in a grand unified theory of reality. This is what's been traditionally called metaphysics. Now, some people, maybe Peter might say, metaphysics never gets anywhere. But I would argue that mature metaphysics has barely begun, because I think for mature metaphysics, you need mature experimental science. And the problem is, as mature experimental sciences emerge, we get this ideology of scientism. Philosophy is neglected. I think most people don't even know what philosophy is these days. But I'm confident that we will ultimately come out of this scientific phase of history. I think the science that's already happening. I think of this as kind of the adolescence of metaphysics. I think we're about to grow up, but we're going through this understandable but ultimately confused rebellion. And I think we will ultimately return to the noble task of trying to build a worldview that can accommodate all of the things we know to be real, and but this time with the benefit of mature experimental science. And who knows, with that advantage, maybe we will ultimately achieve consensus on these very difficult matters. Finally, Julian, has science replaced philosophy, or is philosophy on the way back? Yeah, on the way back, it never really went away, did it, I don't think. I agree, I agree with everybody. Um, <laughs> No, you can't do that. No, it's sort of, I mean, I'm tongue in cheek because the point is, I mean, it seems to me Peter's argument uh, works to the extent if it means that, you know, philosophy can't do science and the things science tells us, philosophy can't tell us, and it'd be silly if they didn't. And that's kind of true. But the, the, as, as Philip says, this overenthusiasm for science is based on the fact that science is, is, is confined to those questions which absolutely are tailor made to be answered by a combination of no more than evidence and, and rigorous argument. And you can solve certain things like that, and you can create answers. Brilliant, I love science, but there is no science of morality, there is no science of aesthetics, there is no science of politics, there isn't really even a science of economics, to be honest, I don't think. There may be in the future, who knows? Um, and, and, you know, when people do, when scientists do, or people who are in love with science, attempt to sort of say, oh, no, no, we can base um, morality purely on science, like Sam Harris did in the Morris Lands Moral Landscape, it's just embarrassing, frankly, you know, because they're making fundamental philosophical errors at the beginning, um, basically, because, you know, science can't tell you what's right and wrong, it just can't, can't give you val value, has no role in science. You cannot detect right, wrong, good, bad, better, worse, under any kind of microscope with any instrument. They just simply aren't there. So either you've got to say that we are basically morality, politics, aesthetics, this is all just flim-flam fiction and nonsense, or you can say there are serious aspects of reality we have to think about as best we can. And yes, some philosophers have science envy because we can't answer those questions with the same precision as scientists can. But that's tough. That's life. We have to get used to that. There are different forms of rational inquiry. And one thing just to throw in here, I mean, if you think science, science can't even tell you what science is, actually. Science is brilliant. But if you ask the question, what is science doing? For example, is it simply providing models for understanding the world, and we don't have to worry about whether they correspond to an actual reality or not. Was it actually describing reality? Well, science can't answer that question for you. Scientists don't, often don't care about that question, and it's fine if you don't care about it. But it's a question that is left over once we've done all the science. And to answer that question, you've got to do a bit of philosophy. So, um, you know, good fun. I enjoy, I enjoy Peter's kind of um, uh, exuberance and everything. But um, I, 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 wonder, I, I wonder whether he's entirely serious. <laughs> so we've got, we've, thank you everyone for like, we've kind of 
cover quite a bit of the ground, so we haven't even got started. So we've got these sort of three parts to this. So our first theme of the day here is what can philosophy tell us about reality that science can't? And Philip, I'm going to bring you in here because you laid out a few possible areas in, in science. Can, can you um, elaborate on that for us? So, I mean, I think if you are a follower of scientism, which is excel, itself a philosophical position, and you think the only things we're permitted to believe in are those that can be experimentally verified, then there's not much of a role for philosophy in uh, finding out about the nature of reality. The trouble is, if you're consistent in your scientism, you won't believe in your own conscious experience because conscious experience is not a postulation of experimental science. The philosopher Daniel Dennett is wonderfully consistent in this, right? He's a zealous believer in scientism. He appreciates that his own conscious experience cannot be experimentally verified, so he doesn't believe in it. So I, th I essentially think there's no middle way between someone like me and someone like Dennett if you're going to be consistent. You either drink the Kool-Aid with Dennett accept scientism, deny the reality of your conscious experience, or you accept that there are non-empirical data, by which I mean information about reality that we know independently of public observation experiments, such as the reality of your own consciousness. As soon as you admit that, then there's a crucial task for philosophy, which is taking the things we know about empirically, the things we know about in these other ways, bringing them together, and it's about time we got back to that very important task. Can you just, can I push you even further yeah. on the consciousness, like to clarify, just make it easy for everyone, what, what for you is it that within consciousness that, that science can't get at? Good, so I think, so I say we know about consciousness in this special way by attending to our own experiences, and when we do this, we discover that our experience involves qualities, colors, sounds, smells, tastes, qualities that can't be captured in the purely quantitative vocabulary of physical science. So if your description of the brain is framed in the purely quantitative vocabulary of neuroscience, you just miss out these qualities and hence really miss out consciousness itself. And finally, you know, we shouldn't be surprised about this because our, as I argue in my book Galileo's Error, quick plug, plug that our <laughs> current scientific paradigm for the last 400 years was designed to exclude consciousness. At the start of the scientific revolution, Galileo wants this purely mathematical, quantitative science. He appreciates that the qualities we encounter in conscious experience, colors, sounds, smells, tastes, can't be captured in these terms, so he says, well, if we want a mathematical science, we've got to take the qualities of consciousness out of the picture. That was a good move. It was the start of mathematical physics. But we're now, it's gone so well. We're now at a phase of history where people like Peter say, it's gone so well, it's the truth of everything. The irony is, it's gone so well because it was designed to be a partial description of reality by Galileo, one that excludes the qualitative reality of conscious experience. What a load of nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I suspected Peter would come in here. Go for it. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll try to quantify that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, if you want an example of the pessimism of a philosopher, that was the perfect example. <laughs> we will never understand consciousness. Let's focus on I consciousness. Yeah, no, but let's focus on consciousness because I think there are actually only two serious problems in science that we have not yet solved. One is the origin of everything, which is part of physics and mathematics, and the other is consciousness, the way that our brains generate this property, this property of matter. And we are making progress. We are, built, we are 
building machines that are edging, not only are we understanding the structure of the brain and beginning to see how bits of the brain in a kind of systems way interact with each other, we are also beginning to build machines that are on the edge of simulating consciousness. And once we have simulated consciousness, we will master other features such as Julia mentioned, aesthetics. Why aesthetics is just a part of consciousness. Once we've mastered consciousness, we shall master aesthetics as well. And we're edging towards doing it. We've got, we, we know that we can build machines that can emulate little bits of consciousness. That's happened over the last 20 years. What's going to happen over the next 200 years? So don't be as pessimistic as you, you were displaying. I'm tempted to bring you in here, Julian, because of the aesthetics coming in to mm. play there. Would you have a response to aesthetics discussed sufficiently? Well, in, actually, in aesthetics is an interesting one because I've got more sympathy for that than the, you, you might have thought. But I mean, b before I sort of like attack a position you may not be have, let's, let's clarify about values, moral values and ethical values. Uh, I don't think they're going to build a sort of a large values collider in, in, in Switzerland soon, right? Um, but what, so was where, do, where, where, where are values going to sit in this? Because oh, I, mean, I can think of a couple of examples. Is it, is it going to be the case that uh, this is simply going to be a description of the way the human mind works. We're simply going to find that we value certain things because of certain brain processes, blah, 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 and that's all there is to it. Or, or what? Is that it? Yeah, it, it's evolution. I mean, I mean it, in order to understand um, our current morality and views about it, we have to think about our ethological history and the way that our attitudes to other people have evolved in a survivalist sort of scenario. So I don't see, I, I know that science at the moment can't say that this is good and this is bad, but I think to understand it, you can use science and you look back over the way that we have emerged from the cave and have come to the current day and, and that illuminates morality. Okay, well that's interesting because you see, I think this, this gets to a something that's potentially fruitful. It seems to me that uh, the, the scientific kind of view is uh, adopts a kind of a, a highly reductive view in the sense that nothing genuinely importantly different can emerge from the more fundamental uh, building blocks of the universe. And the morality is a good example, because if you take somebody who's a little less headbangish about this, like Patricia Churchland, Patricia Churchland is often characterized as being kind of a, a, a sort of a fundamentalist. She isn't, she's very clear. She says that what you understand through neuroscience and everything is the neural platform on which morality sits. And evolution explains how it emerged. But, the, but I think most of us would think that, yes, you can tell that story, that's true. But what has emerged takes on a life of its own. We are not merely slaves to this, because otherwise you would never be able to make a distinction between what we have evolved to judge to be right or wrong and what is actually right or wrong. So if someone could show that we have evolved to, 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 to think, like, say, rape is a good thing, right? Because if, if you evolved to approve of rape because it, it, it helps to sort of mix up the gene pool or something, you'd have no argument against that unless you could show that it hadn't evolved. Whereas actually what evolution has done and the new and the brain has done has developed the capacity for us to engage in thoughts which somehow take us to a, another level of organization and complexity so uh, you know things emerge out of the basic physical nature of the world which can't be then reduced back into them and i think that's that's the, the what how i would see it i'm not finished yeah. you know do you can you respond to the kind of 
can't get an orc from yeah, I mean, sort of... So I thought I agreed with you at the start, Jeannie, and then, and then I sort of found myself thinking, yeah, but we're not trying to reduce it back to that, right? It's, it's science is about trying to understand that the, the physical elements of our existence, right? It's not... And consciousness is a difficult one because, as, as Philip pointed out, you know, we have it right now, right? We, all of us in this room have a sensation, an understanding of I, myself, I'm here and doing this kind of thing. So, you know, that is undeniably a problem. But also, you know, if I said animals aren't conscious, people would have to, I hope at least most of you would disagree with me, right? So there, there, this, this sort of idea that somehow consciousness is something that happens other, that doesn't relate to our physicality, I don't think is completely true. Oh, no, um, obviously sorry, it does relate to our physicality. That you, without the physical um, foundations of it, it would not be possible. I'd fine. agree with that. So, but, so then the, the premise of science is just to, if you understand... The foundation that you spoke of if you understand the foundation you understand the scope the playing field within which we are playing surely that's that can only be a good thing no I don't think anyone's denying the fact that there's you know relevance to or the fact that human beings you know clearly have systems that that allow them to operate in ways in which aren't completely in keeping with what our biology tells us to do. I mean, else right now I'd just be snacking, you know. Um, that, that sort of, I mean, I'm not joking about that. Um, <laughs> but you, you see what I'm saying. I'm saying that I, I don't see that the pursuit of science, the belief that uh, the scientific method gives us an accurate representation of our bodies, of ourselves, of the world that we're in, not ourselves, excuse me, our bodies and the world that we are in, is it, I don't think it takes away from the pursuit of trying to understand how we feel about that and what does that mean and where does that come from. I, I, I don't see those as mutually exclusive. Well, well I'm not, OK, we're not sure we're entirely connecting because I don't think so either. The question is whether or not that scientific account exhausts all that can be meaningfully said about this. That's the scientism thing. And, I, and Peter seems to think it does. That well, the, science will, the only sensible things that can be said about even morality are things that can be said eventually by science and evolution, etc. Whereas I think the alternative view is that's not, that's not true because... Um, the things that uh, emerge through the complexity of the physical world, including consciousness, the social world, the political world, the moral world, as it were, you know, have, a, have an inherent kind of, have a, have a, their nature and complexity is not such that it can be fully understood at that basic level. You know, and I think the idea that there are different sort of levels of organisation in the natural world and that the best way to understand them is depends upon what they are. It should be a fairly natural one. I mean, reductionist scientists don't say that if your, if your battery is flat, your car battery is flat, it's true. A good hard-nosed empiricist say your car battery is flat. But in fundamental physics, there's no such thing as a car or battery, right? It's other things going on. But no one says that, oh, well, you, we now know that it's not true your car battery is flat. It's really what fundamental physics says. We recognise that at that level of organisation, you can talk about things in a way, in a way that makes sense. Now, I think it, you're taking it to another level. When you're talking about elements of consciousness and morality and values, you're, think, you're talking about things which ultimately, as you're right, they sit upon this physical basis. And, of course, it's good to know them. But the idea that the, the best way to address these issues and think about them and to understand them is by going down to the, the, the level of natural science is, 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 an, is, is, is an illusion. It's certainly, even if you could get there eventually, I don't see why we think we could. We're, we're not going to get there any, anywhere, anywhere soon, are we? Well, science, science travels in two directions. Science drills down into the foundations mm. to, to look for the infrastructure of reality, if mm. you like. 
Uh, but it also starts, it, it, it burrows out to the surface as well. And I think, it, so not only is science reductionist, it is also assemblist. And I think that the assemblist phase of, of science is much more difficult than the reductionist phase. It's very easy to drill down to the Higgs boson. It's very difficult to, to look for the consequences of the Higgs boson in the everyday world. Extremely difficult, but it can be done. And I think what science is moving into its current phase is that of complexity and seeing how um, simple fundamental events, let's call them that, proliferate and emerge fluoresce, if you like, into, into the world of, of, of complex reality. So that's what scientists are turning their attention to. They have practiced a great deal on drilling down. What they're now learning to do is to borrow up. But do you recognize, though, Peter, that there might be um, limitations? I mean, do you see any chinks here in what the scientific model can be applied to? OK, if I can turn it in. I'm interested to see if you question. think there are any chinks there. Um, really, it's really the limitations of science that we're beginning to think about that. I, I basically think there are no limitations of science, obviously. I think that the scientific method can to be... To which it can be applied, specifically. The scientific method can be applied um, to every aspect of human and non-human existence. But I, it does worry me that there is a distinction, I think, between understanding and comprehension. And I think that we will be able to assemble the equations of everything, let's call it that, shorthand. We will be able to do the maths. We will be able to solve the equations, but we won't comprehend them. Take, for example, quantum theory, which is the paradigm of this. The quantum theory is one of the most accurate, most precise theories we've got. We can predict properties to you know, countless decimal places and so on. We can do the maths. But when it comes to comprehension, we are bogged down because we have been brought up in the farmyard and we're, our brains have been constructed to, in, to understand classical events, position, velocity, you name it, okay? Um, and it's when you're suddenly confronted with the overthrow of common sense, as I was saying in my introduction, and you have to try to grapple with equations that are telling you that ultimate reality is not like common sense suggests, that I think we really run into difficulty. So I think it's quite possible that we will, we will never comprehend quantum theory or whatever comes next, even though we shall have a total understanding of how to use it. Philip, yeah. Respond to some of these points on my alleged pessimism on consciousness. So, I mean, of course, there is a robust and well-developed science of consciousness. I'm a huge fan and, and follow it as much, as much as I'm able. But, I mean, when I emphasize this point, I mean, consciousness is not a publicly observable phenomenon. So how do we do the science of consciousness in that case? Well, you can't observe somebody's consciousness, but you can ask them what they're feeling and experiencing. And if you do this while you scan their brains, then you can start to establish which kinds of brain activity, and I think this is what Peter was referring to, go with which kinds of conscious experience. And that's really important data. 
But that's not in itself a theory of consciousness. What we ultimately want from a theory of consciousness is an explanation of why certain kinds of physical activity go along with certain kinds of experience. And because consciousness is not publicly observable, that is not a question you can answer with an experiment. All you can do with experiments is establish more correlations. At that point, you have to turn to philosophy and just look at the various proposals philosophers have offered for accounting for the fact that physical activity goes along with conscious experience. Or at least that's what's now philosophy. I hope it will one day, the subtitle of my book is Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. You know, I think philosophy is what you have when the rules of the game are not established. I hope this will one day be established science, but it won't be just purely experimental because consciousness is not a publicly observable phenomenon. Of course uh, it is. I mean, you're displaying the aspects of consciousness that matter. You're thinking, you're talking, you're sharing ideas, you're responding to the environment. What so else is there? I think if all you're trying to explain is, is publicly observable behavior, you just postulate mechanisms. Well, that, that's all you, why would you ever, we, we know, we think consciousness exists because if you're in pain, you're directly aware of your pain. Not because we, you know, needed to postulate it for, you know, some, for some empirical reasons. I think we could go down a whole hard problem of consciousness wormhole here, but I'd like to bring Julian in on sort of pushing on the values and ethics a bit more. So I work in bioethics and I, I'm surrounded by scientists who are very confident in their application of the scientific model and method, but recognize that they're, they're in on an ethics council because they need philosophy to do some of the work that cannot simply be done in the lab using science. Could you respond to that a little bit, Julian? Well, yeah, I mean, it, I just, I, it's, it's very difficult to sort of even sort of make sense of the position one disagrees with. I mean, if you go to the, the Sam Harris thing, Sam Harris has to sort of get going on the idea that, um, you know, there is, uh, you can have a pure science of morality. He has to first identify what it is that is the sort of the ultimate good, something that we can see as good without doubt, without question empirically. And it just fails at the first hurdle because he, he comes up with the idea that, you know, unlimited pain is something that everyone has to recognize as bad, full stop. So that's uncontentious. And once you've got that, you can then just go by science or something. I'm slightly getting, I'm getting this slightly wrong, so go and get the original. But it's, it's more or less that. But whatever you do, at the point at which you kind of say, you know, this is just a bad. Why, on what basis bad, you know? I mean, maybe pain, pain is great. I, mean, I don't like pain, you don't like pain. I know I don't like pain, I know you don't like pain. On what scientific basis, though, do we say it's bad? In any scientific basis, you can say it's good, actually, because pain is, you know, obviously a part of our sort of survival mechanism. And also, but then if you think about what people value in life, um, actually, sometimes people are prepared to put up with a lot of pain. Like Gunesh, actually sort of, you know, did three quarters of a marathon with a broken, <laughs> fractured, <Don't> <laughs> fractured um, you know, ankle or something because she, she wanted to do that. You know, the, the idea, well, on the, the, why, why would she do that if it involves pain? Pain is bad, right? I mean, it's just, I, I don't think you can even sort of get going with this. Now, obviously, what you can do, this is not to say science has nothing to say about it, as you say. You can understand a lot about how we came to be the kind of creatures we are and why it is we value things other than just pleasure and pain by looking into evolution, history, science and so forth. Of course, and all that's really, really useful. But if ever there's a moral dispute between myself and someone else about it, we're not going to resolve that by saying, well, what does the science say? It just isn't going to happen, is it? 
Well, Peter thinks it will, but... I mean, but I feel like, well, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Peter, but what I heard, at least, was science is in the business of description. Mm. It's not in the business of uh, comprehension, as I understood it, was, is a judgment, right? Comprehension is a way of integrating it into another framework. Have I misunderstood that? No, right? So, for example, um, science tells me that males and females are different. Right. But that doesn't tell me that one is better than the other. Unless I then say, here's a scenario in which I have an outcome, a goal of some description that I'm trying to describe, and then I'm now pitting these differences that I've observed against each other to see what the outcome is, in which case I might be able to say, males on the whole are better than females on the whole at lifting weights, for example, right? In terms of average. So you see kind of what I'm trying to say. Science, the judgments that you're talking about that science maybe sort of at least proclaims to be making, right? It happens under a context under which there's a test that's happening. There's, there's a task at hand and two different objects are being pitted against each other. Does that make sense? So I don't think science is trying to say, look, if we understand everything about how the physical universe works, we'll understand why it is when you see Lake Como for the first time, you feel the urge to take a deep breath of air in and feel a sense of awe, right? Science is the business that could throw you into a brain scanner and say, oh, look, all of your pleasure networks and your brain have lit up, and bizarrely so is the bit that tells you to breathe more or something like that. It's a descriptive act. I don't think it's intended to tell me that that's right or wrong or anything like that, at least as I understand it. Well, I would agree with that, but then in which case, then, what do we then do about um, better and worse, good and bad? Because if the science can't do that, are we just going to give up on that and say, let's get over this illusion of, you know, reality is just an illusion, it's just a veneer, it's something, let's just, let's just forget about it. We can't do that. We can't do that as a human society. We're, so we're still going to have questions about values. And those questions, I mean, the, the thing is, sometimes people like to drive, drive a kind of too much of a wedge. Our, 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 our judge, bioethics is a brilliant example. If you look at bioethics, you have to take into account the facts, right? You have to pay attention to the evidence. Of course you should. When they were trying to decide, you know, about the, the, when they're legalizing for abortion and all that stuff in Mary Warnock, you have to know facts about the development of the fetus. All these things are very, very important, but they don't by themselves deliver the conclusion. You need something else. And we call that, we call that philosophy. And, and I, I really can't, I don't, well, there are two things. I don't think that we'll ever reach the point in which there won't be a role for something like philosophy. I don't know that for sure, but then the challenge is for, for, the, for, the, for, the, for the scientist who says there will come a point, I don't know on what basis they say that. And secondly, given that that point, if it ever is going to come, is going to come a way, way long time in the future, then let's not say philosophy is dead yet. Maybe philosophy will die one day, but I, it, it seems to have a very important task for the foreseeable future. I mean, I, and I think there is an, an important thing here for me. I, I mean, I think in, it does, I think scientism does lead to an impoverished conception of reality. I mean, I think, you know, we know our experience involves qualities, and yet our official worldview tells us all that's really going on in your head is the purely quantitative story of electrochemical signaling. Or on the values case, I think we know Human trafficking is objectively abhorrent, and yet our official worldview tells us, you know, we just live in this meaningless universe. So, you know, I think this lead, can lead to a sense of alienation. We lack a worldview in which we can make sense of the meaning and significance of our lives. And I think in the absence of that, people turn to 
other worldviews, nationalism, fundamentalist religion, consumerism. So I think um, you know, there is an importance to build a worldview in which we can make sense of the meaning and value of our lives, all aspects, including value, including consciousness, including but, free agency, perhaps. But I don't know how to unpick everything that you said, because I, I, I disagreed with everything except the adjectives. Uh, except the word? Adjectives. <laughs> um, first of all, we can understand the difference between right and wrong. Um, because the view what, about what is right and what is wrong has emerged through the stabilization of societies. That science societies might well have experimented with rape, they might have experimented with eating their firstborn and so on, found it didn't work. And so in due course they settled upon a, a series of events which have, and, and procedures that have led to stable societies, which we have more or less got now. So um, our, the difference between right and wrong can be elucidated by considering um, our ecological history. Why should we care about stable society? What? Why should we care about I'm to, smuggling I'm, I'm, I'm in moral to, facts? I'm, I'm coming to that in a moment. Um, secondly, you must accept, and I think you do accept implicitly, that the brain is just a collection of chemical reactions. The brain is a connection of conscious particles, on my view. No, what do you mean? <laughs> that, 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 now, we're at, now, <laughs> now we're at the heart of it. You think that there are conscious atoms. I Not think, atoms, particles. Well, conscious particles. Let's we'll, stay in we'll, focus. We'll, 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 we'll call them think-ons. Right? So our brain is pervaded by this fluid mass of thinkons, in your view, which erupt into nice warm feelings, good, bad, and all that sort of thing, because where they swarm together in different well, parts you of the put brain. A silly I know that it consists of carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and, and whatever. And it's that infrastructure that is open to our investigation and, in due course, understanding. I'm going to... Sorry, can I, uh, I'll do one account. One minute go. return and then well, yeah, I want well, to... Well, no, because the thing is, see, Peter used the word just, right? Take the word just out of what you said and, and what, what you're left with. Unjust the in. brain is... Put unjust in. No, no, you, used, <laughs> you said the brain... You know, the, we know that the mind is just, and yeah. you said... Take away the word just. The, 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 the mind, whatever, is is a, well, I don't know how to say it, not is, it is constituted by um, neurons and stuff going yeah, on in the brain, think right? But so not, not, not think-ons. Not think-ons, no, I'm agreeing. I'm not, I'm not with him on think-ons. <laughs> but take Phil, you're on your own here, mate. But this word, this, this word just is, is, I think, the, the, the thing you should always be aware of when someone says just. Well, if I was to say to you that Beethoven's Night Sympathy is just a collection of air vibrations, right? If I say Beethoven's Night Symphony is a collection of, of vibrations of air, right? Then you say, well, yeah, of course, at that physical level, it is a collection. But just? Well, no, because phenomenologically and emotionally, it's something else, it's something more. And so I think the brain, the mind, is at that physical level. There is nothing, it doesn't, it's not constituted by anything more than the physical stuff. But it, it, to say it is just that stuff is to, is to underestimate and to play down the extent to which that stuff, the way it's playing together, creates something which is, you know, in the cliche, the greater the sum of its parts. I just want to turn to Ganesh for the final word. 
Have we got too much of a two cultures thing going on there? Can you see a bit more of a, a middle route here? I mean, my... Yes, basically. I think, I mean, that's just how my, my, my mind works. Of course, science and the scientific method is the way of describing the physical universe. It's been remarkably successful. I don't think anyone on this panel is denying that. And yes, we can all feel something when we exist, right? That's what we're talking about. And that's what makes this conversation so difficult. Consciousness, feelings. These are things that I'm not sure that even if someone told me this is physically exactly what's happening when you're feeling elation, it doesn't really, what does that mean? It's nothing effectively, right? It doesn't change how I feel about it or whatever. And I think that fundamental disconnect between how we as human beings integrate different kinds of information is where this interface is happening, right? We can be told on one hand, this is literally what's happening to you. And that won't necessarily help you understand why do I feel like this. But I don't think understanding that information takes anything away from you. I actually personally think it's quite a good starting point to at least going, all right, so, you know, if I suddenly sprang up and put my hands on my hips, you'd probably, that sounds like the start of that song, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> you'd either think I'm going to get really aggressive or start dancing. But, you know, there's, there's reasons for why that feel, would make you feel a certain thing, but it doesn't change take that away from you. So I think, I think it's to do with probability and I think it's to do with integration of different types of information and the uncomfortableness of being a human being and having to basically on one hand accept I'm just a sack of chemicals and that's beyond my control. And the lived experience effectively of being like, I'm just a sack of blah, 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 all this stuff, but also yet somehow I am able to regulate this. I do have a feeling of it. I have dreams, all these strange things happen to me. And how do I integrate those two things together? That's just my thinking. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iai.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.